Hello and welcome. I'm Sean. And I'm Kat. And this is another episode of Been There, Seen That. This is our third week of Road to the Oscars, and today we'll be discussing Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley. Before we go any further, once again, this episode is not spoiler-free, so if you have not seen the film, we highly recommend you do that before giving us a listen. We will also be discussing the book in the 1947 film, so if you do want to give those a watch as well, go for it. So, initial thoughts. What, what did you think going into this? Well, I just want to put it out there that I have seen this movie three times now. The mm-hmm. first was on opening weekend. The second was a bootleg of the black and white release. And <laughs> the third time was last night before recording this episode, just so I had a fresh watch. And I want to tell you that I don't think this movie requires three viewings. In fact, I'm kind of upset that I watched it three times. <laughs> but there are aspects to it that pulled me in. And I saw different things each view that I might not necessarily have seen the first time around. That's a fair point. Yeah, I've seen this film one and a half times. The half time I did turn it off intentionally. But yeah, I I see how there might be things that you don't notice the first time. I don't think there's a lot of things. It's not like you're watching a Christopher Nolan film where every time you see it, there's something new to unpack. Yeah, definitely. It's not a very deep movie necessarily, but it has its moments and... With a juggernaut runtime of two and a half hours, it definitely is not for everyone. I felt like, I don't know about you, but I felt that I was watching almost a director's cut of the film. Absolutely. I think there were a lot of scenes in it where you felt kind of being like you were being dragged along, you know? Yeah, definitely. Have you read the book at all or no? I have not. I actually had no idea that it was based off of a book until we started doing research for this episode. Oh, fair. I've seen the old movie. I read the book a while back, I think in high school. It was either high school or early college years. But I remember seeing the original movie a couple of times, actually. And being a fan of it, it's definitely different. There are similarities to it, but there's definitely differences. Mm -hmm. Um, Can I ask you which one you liked better? I think that from a watching perspective, I like the original better. Mm -hmm. Just because it's about 40 minutes shorter. (laughs) And I can pinpoint exactly the 40 minutes that I would cut in this version. Okay. But I do think that I appreciated the characters more in the remake. Yeah, and I actually have a lot to speak on the characters. But let's talk about the the book a little bit because I haven't read the book. So the book is written by William Lindsay Gresham, who befriended a man who had been a sideshow carnival worker. And he was fascinated by all these different stories that were shared with him. And that was the inspiration for him to write Nightmare Alley. Oh, wow. That's actually really cool. And that makes for me, me want to read the book. The book is really well written. For me, um, and we'll talk about this when we get specifically into the plot, but the way that they talk about the geek and the geek show inside the carnival is just so well handled in the book. It opens with it and it closes yeah. with it, which really shows you this full circle moment, which I'm sure you are aware is in the film. Mm-hmm. So I just felt like the book did a really good job with that. Yeah, I almost see how this can be translated better into a like novel format because when you're taking stories of characters like this film does, it's almost easier when you're able to 
experience the inside of their brain. I'm assuming that's what the book does. Yeah, definitely. So you're getting those thoughts in a way that you don't when you're watching something on film. Um, And I think that's where we get a little lost in the film and the plot gets a little lost because we're watching these really rich and full characters, but you're not getting their fullness and you're not appreciating who they are and what their story is because you can't hear their thoughts. Exactly. It's all an internal struggle. Yeah. Now, for those of you who don't know or may not be familiar, a geek show in a carnival is a man who pretends to have these animalistic tendencies. He'll cuddle snakes, he'll bite heads off of chickens, as Mm -hmm. shown graphically in this film. Very graphically. Um, They basically are drunk. And as it's described, it's a drunk who's desperate enough to act in such a way to ensure that they get paid in their drinks. Mm -hmm. And the whole plot of Nightmare Alley essentially is this full circle moment of this almost slick talker who learns the craft and becomes this sham carnival worker essentially. And it all just comes crashing down and it comes full circle back to the geek. Yeah. And Gresham, actually, the author of the book, he said that the story of the geek haunted him and he finally just had to get rid of it and he had to write it out. And the novel was what that was. Yeah, so the geek is obviously a very important part of this plot in the film. And like you said, they do make that full circle. And I think watching it a second time, there's a lot of foreshadowing going towards what's going to happen to our main character. I almost think it's... A little bit of overkill opinion. So the first time I saw it, I didn't actually see it as foreshadowing. I was Mm -hmm. very confused with everything that was going on. Going in with knowledge of the plot prior, I had more of a concept of who the characters were and what could have been happening. But I definitely didn't know what I was supposed to be looking at my first watch through of this. And having read the book and seen the original movie, I was going in expecting almost this hybrid of both and it is a hybrid of both in a sense but at the same time it's both of them on steroids it takes it to the next level Mm -hmm. a perfect example is in the violence i mean if you watch the original movie it's just not that violent it's very implied off screen the geek is more of just a implied part of the film it doesn't actually show a man biting a chicken's head off whereas in the 2021 version It was just front and center. You saw a guy bite a chicken's head off. And I'm sure it has something to do with the times. I mean, the original one came out in 1947, but you're looking at the 2021 Nightmare Alley and the 1947 Nightmare Alley, and there's definitely less of a filter on it. Yeah, and I think things were, they did very Greek back then. You know what I mean? Everything violent happens off of the camera. Um, You're not witnessing that. I don't think, I'm I'm not, you know, I don't have the facts on this, but I don't think the Motion Picture Association allowed those things on screen because I know when Hitchcock was putting out things, Psycho was very, there was a pushback against that. Um, And that was just blood. So I highly doubt they'd allow that scene with the chicken on So film. It's, it's funny that you should mention Hitchcock because when I was watching this film, I just kept thinking to myself that I would have loved to see Hitchcock do an interpretation yeah. of Nightmare Alley. And everything he did was pretty much an adaptation. So that's, I yeah, think he would have nailed been great. it. It would have been phenomenal. Yeah. I do think the violence was gratuitous and it wasn't necessary. It didn't really push the plot forward. I think we could have done without the visualization of it. It didn't push the plot forward, but I wasn't surprised it was present, especially in an R-rated Guillermo del Toro film. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You kind of know what you're walking into with that. So let's talk about the plot a little bit. I mean, 
The movie follows Stan Carlyle, who is played by Bradley Cooper, as he is becoming this carnival man almost. It opens up with him dragging a body across the floor, which definitely yeah. was a bold note to open the film on. And it shows him walking away from this house on fire. And you're wondering what's going on. And it's almost like a mystery that you piece together as the film goes on. Yeah, and they, they keep having these flashbacks of like that scene. And to be honest with you, I was expecting something really dark and sinister to have happened. It kind of didn't deliver on that. It was still dark, but it wasn't like, I don't know. I was expecting a little more. They drew it out so long and so much. I feel like if you had given us that information at the very beginning of the plot, like it would have essentially been the same. I like the 1947 version of Nightmare Alley because when we meet Stan in that version, he's already with the carnival. It skips this whole mystery. imagery, mystery, yeah. whatever you want to call it. It skips it and it just opens it. And I kind of like a movie that opens with its feet both on the ground running. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I don't think it was necessary to add that kind of mystery. I think it's almost more effective to give us this, you know, you don't know anything about his past and he just shows up in a carnival. Yeah, I did like that he followed Major Mosquito to the carnival in this version. I'm glad yeah. that if he had to find the carnival, it was by following someone and not just him stumbling upon it because... That would just not make sense. Right. The beginning of the film is actually really interesting because this is another production that was affected by COVID. And a lot of the early scenes were filmed at the latter half of it. So Bradley Cooper was actually able to lose like 15 pounds between the ending scenes and the beginning scenes over that COVID break. So he appears a lot younger, which I think- I was going to say, I noticed cool. his appearance definitely changed throughout the film. And I didn't know if that was intentional or not. Yeah, um, and I don't think they meant to do that, but because they had that extra time, they were like, oh yeah, let's make use of this and let's do that. Rooney Mara was actually pregnant as well when she was filming this. And I, did, she gave I did hear about that. Yeah, she gave birth on their hiatus. Yeah, during COVID. Um, but because of those early scenes, she's like very scantily clad. She had time to like kind of look not pregnant for those scenes. So I read somewhere actually that Guillermo del Toro said that one of the reasons he had long been interested in the subject of grifters and fake psychics who prey on vulnerable and grieving people like the ones in this film was that in 1998, when his father was kidnapped in Mexico and held for ransom, his family was immediately preyed upon by con artists claiming to be psychics. I kind of almost gained an appreciation for this movie when I read that because it, it held it in real life. And I think this is a film that is set in a, even though it's, meant to be real life characters and it's it kind of strays from del toro's typical fantasy land it still has that air of fantasy to it so it grounded it in real life to me so once stan gets to the carnival he befriends pete and pete is basically the psychic that is mentioned that we were just talking about who's a phony and he basically has this thing going where he preys on the rich and those who have lost people in death and he uses their grieving to his advantage to make them believe that he's communicating with their deceased loved ones. And it becomes this whole con going on throughout the film and Stan kind of gains success from it. But I think one thing that I really noticed in comparison to the 1947 Nightmare Alley was that in the original, Pete was much more protective of his secrets and his books and his craft. Whereas I felt like in this one, it almost wanted us to root for Stan to become this con artist. And I feel like Pete kind of yeah. just taught him. There is that moment where Pete is like, no, you can't do this. Like, that's why I quit. And something about the face of God. I don't know. He has this whole like monologue and Pete's 
also a drunk, so a lot of the things that comes out of his mouth don't really make sense. But he does have this long-winded monologue about why he quit what he did and why it's he doesn't do the spook show, is what they call it. He doesn't do the spook show anymore. I definitely didn't get that kind of pushback as to why it was that important because he does end up giving him the book, you know? Yeah, and I think that it's also important to acknowledge that Pete is an alcoholic because that does yeah. lead to his inevitable death, which is really sad because Stan's the one that gives him the bottle of alcohol that yeah. leads to him just knocking out. But it makes sense in the original because after Pete dies from that bottle of alcohol, Xena, Pete's wife, needs a new partner for her act. And that is when he learns the craft because Xena gives him the notebook with all the trade secrets in it. And I think it makes sense more in terms of the story. Yeah, because in this one, he runs off with, uh, what's her name? Uh, Molly. With Molly. And he he says, Molly, let's start this act together. And then she kind of becomes Xena's part. But then she's worried that Xena's going to be mad at her. It's a little convoluted the way that it happens. And I think him being Xena's partner makes a lot more sense than what they kind of crafted this story into. Let's talk about Xena because she's portrayed by Toni Collette, who we know (laughs) is grossly just underrated. She is one of the most phenomenal actresses in this time that we're living in right now. And I don't think she's nearly appreciated enough. I think my thing that I like the most about her is that she's just so versatile. I've never seen the same character from her twice. Exactly. And everything she does, she puts her, I mean, as you should as a, as an actor, but she puts her entire body and soul into it and really becomes these other people. Whereas a lot of people in acting use their, their own self and their own idiosyncrasies. She kind of creates like little details about each character that are so specific and special. And it, it, you don't even think you're watching the same person. I mean, comparing this to Hereditary, those are two different people and then you throw in a wild card like knives out or something like that yeah and she oh my god she's so good in that and it's unrecognizable she is one of the most versatile actresses i think that's working right now oh absolutely without a doubt another actor who i feel is ridiculously versatile is willem dafoe oh my god (laughs) i love him in everything that he does there's not a single role i've been like oh he doesn't crush that. Like, he's just phenomenal. And I do think with him, a lot of his characters, unlike uh, Tony Collette, I think he does play on himself a little bit in his characters. So it, you don't get that same kind of acting technique, but you do get this really well thought out and constructed character where he does pull on himself and he uses himself and his own body to create these characters. Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. I think Tony Collette is becoming these characters and Willem Dafoe is creating these hybrids almost of himself mixed in with these characters and it's just beautiful to watch which is just as valid as an acting technique I mean that's 100 I know what I prefer to do I know a lot of actors prefer to do that um it's just a lot smoother of a process getting into the mental state exactly uh but he is absolutely stellar in this and I I mean, from the minute he's on the screen, he just commands every scene that he's in. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, he has a very important plot line in the carnival. He's the person that introduces the geek the first time we see him. Yeah. So, and I think that looking back between the 1947 version and the regular version, and I don't mean to keep comparing the two because at the end of the day, we're here to talk about the 2021 version. But but it is important. It is important. It's important to the history and it's important because I think that a lot of the aspects of the 1947 version make 
the story make more sense and more respectable. But Mm -hmm. what I was trying to say is that in the 1947 version, Willem Dafoe's character, Clem, obviously wasn't portraying him back then, but he could have. He refuses to talk about the geek show because he... It's very controversial and he gets defensive of it. And in the original one, Pete's the one that tells Stan about it because Pete's the one that drinks and he knows all about the geek because of his excessive drinking. Interesting. You know, the more and more you talk about this 1947 version, the more I want to watch it because I feel like we'll get there. But (laughs) I definitely I I would I definitely would visit it if you have not watched it before, preferably. I mean, if you're already here listening to this episode, you've hopefully watched the 2021 one but yeah if you have time definitely check out the original it'll make you appreciate this one a little bit more and it's a definite shorter runtime in general i think that alcohol plays a big part of this plot oh absolutely yeah that's a huge catalyst and that's for both that's for the 1947 and for this one but i think that in terms of comparing the two i think that in the 1947 one it was more of I don't know, an anti-alcoholism message. Yeah. I mean, it was showing characters Pete. Pete was the bigger alcoholic in the original one. And it was showing you that that's how you're going to wind up. And it's showing you the geek character and all that stuff. And I feel like it was really like pushing it. Whereas with the 2021 one, he chose to make alcoholism a metaphor for Stan's similarity to his father. At least that was my interpretation of it. Because if you notice in the very beginning, Stan is very proud that he doesn't drink and he doesn't partake in any substances and once he leaves the carnival it just shows him going down this bender path that he was so high and mighty above i think that starts in dr lilith ritter's appointment room is that correct where she starts getting him to drink i would agree with that i definitely say that that's the turning point for stan's character in general yeah um let's talk about Kate Blanchett for a second, because she is a knockout. Speaking of uh, Dr. Ritter. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So she plays Dr. Ritter in this, and she has this way of moving about her. And I can't remember where I read this, but they said she doesn't move, she slinks. And it's I think that's such a good way of putting it, because... She just glides across the floor every time she's walking and she she's so fluid. No matter what film or what character I'm watching Kate Blanchett perform in, she intimidates me. She's so good. Yeah. She's just so powerful. And you know who her character reminds me of? This is totally not relevant at all, but she reminds me of that one character in The Incredible. <laughs> Oh, Mirage. Blonde. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mirage. Wow. (laughs) What a random, what a random comparison. (laughs) I thought that the minute I saw her on the screen. I don't see the similarities, but I could see more of the personality traits. Anyway, we're not here to talk about the Incredibles. (laughs) Maybe another day. (laughs) Maybe another day. Um, But yeah, I think, I think she's absolutely phenomenal. And I I really do think, you know, the film aside, my opinions, well, I'll share my opinions on that later, but I think every single actor that's in this does a really standout job and any one of them could could have held a scene on their own oh definitely and i mean i'm pretty sure the majority of them do have at least one scene that they carry on their own yeah absolutely and they i mean together they just create magic it's it's really stunning to watch just the acting perspective of well i think that it's funny too if you look at dr ritter kate blanchett's character in Mm -hmm. the original again going back to it She's a secondary character, but she's definitely one of the primary four in this one. Yeah, and I I don't even think it has to do with her screen time. I think she's just 
stunning. She's just so, she makes her presence known so much. Oh, yeah, no. Well, I mean, her entire subplot, the whole psychoanalysis subplot was not in the original. Really? I There's think your, that... There is your 40 minutes of additional footage right there. Got it. Okay. I don't know if that would be the 40 minutes that I would cut. I think that lends a hand to a really interesting part of the plot. And that's one of the additions that I, I do think aids this film. Interesting. I'd beg to differ because honestly, okay. the psychoanalysis scenes were the ones where I was kind of checking my phone, seeing what time it was, seeing how much time was left in the movie. And I kind of was just not understanding how it tied to the plot. Of course, my first viewing, I was hoping that it was going to tie in kind of bigger than it did. But yeah, because it it turns into a money thing. Exactly. And I mean, seeing something that's a story I'm familiar with, and seeing this brand new subplot introduced, I was expecting it to just go somewhere. And I feel like it didn't go anywhere that I didn't already know it would. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So let me ask you, because you have the background knowledge on the original text, Ezra's character, how important is he to the original plot? Ezra's character is in it. Um, It's not as graphic. It's still the same plot with him, essentially. So he hires Stan, who is now going around posing as the psychic and preying on the vulnerable who have lost someone. It follows Stan doing this to Ezra, who's this very wealthy man who lost his wife. And he basically Mm -hmm. is looking for closure on it and is paying these copious amounts of money to just communicate through this psychic who's yeah, a fraud. It ends up being it ends up being around like $200,000 once you do the math or something. And for that that time is an absurd amount of money. Yeah, and the final act is Stan brings Molly in on it and says you need to pose as the ghost of his wife from a distance to give him closure. He'll pay me mm-hmm. all this money. And you just need to stand far away and act like you're a ghost. And that'll be the closure. And he thinks it's all going to go according to plan with Ezra, who will listen to the rules and just respectfully stay away. But when Ezra sees this woman and this figure in the distance that he thinks is his wife, he obviously goes running up to it in the film. And Molly, like, has hesitation, correct? Molly She's has hesitation. At this point. Yeah, definitely. She's done with the shenanigans. She fell in love with Stan in the beginning when he was an honest man. Mm-hmm. And now that he's just this sham and this con and this alcoholic, and an alcoholic, she makes it clear that this is the last stunt that she's on board for. And after this, she's done. Mm-hmm. And it all kind of goes south when Ezra breaks the rules and goes running towards this figure only to realize it's not his wife and that he's been shammed. Yeah. I think that's such a sad part of the whole film. And you really do feel bad for Ezra because, I mean, he's just giving everything that he has to have contact with his wife. And I, it was a... A shaky ending to her life, wasn't it? So she actually died of a forced abortion, which is really traumatic. Right, and it's his fault, correct? Yes, he was the one to force her to have the abortion. So the guilt is definitely real. But things take a turn, again, once he realizes that he's been shammed. And it's a little bit different, not to compare it to the original, but in the original, I feel like they definitely gave Molly more of a character redemption because it's revealed in the original by Molly because she feels guilty about shamming this man into thinking that she's playing his wife and she breaks character. Wow. Okay. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. The new version's a very violent version of that. That's so interesting. And I'm, I'm really wondering why they made these different decisions. I know they're obviously trying to make their own adaptation of this novel, but I think that's a really poetic moment 
with Molly and and she doesn't have a lot of advocacy for herself in this film. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, I know she tries to leave Stan, but other than that, you don't see a lot from Molly other than kind of following him around. Yeah, I definitely think that Molly's character got lost in translation in this adaptation. I think that they definitely took all of the stuff that was good about Molly's character and kind of just cut it into what I would deem a secondary character. I would deem... Yeah, she's kind of not important. Yeah, she's very much background. I think that she is classified as the leading lady if you were to look at the billing, but Mm -hmm. I definitely think that her character feels sidelined. I absolutely agree with you. I have a quote from the New York Times here that says, Del Toro is a world builder but he can have a tough time bringing his creations to life, which is the case here, despite the hard work of his fine cast. Once he's finished with the preliminaries, he struggles to make the many striking parts cohere into a living, breathing whole. And I think that's kind of where we lose the characters. Like, the actors are doing their work, they're doing their job, but the adaptation and the final cut kind of don't give us that living, breathing character. And we're, we're losing their intention, we're losing their personality. It's its really sad because I feel like this film could have really been something special. It could have been a character study on a lot of these different lifestyles. I mean, we're, we're coming out of a carnival. It's all these different ways of life, but they're getting lost in this lot that's not super cohesive. I feel like a big thing with me was the ending, specifically Molly's ending. Yeah. So the original film much more of a happy ending, much more of a 1947's ending. Molly finds (laughs) Stan all these years later working at a carnival and she promises to take care of him like in their future. And it just ends there. And I feel like that's so much more of a happily ever after ending in comparison to this 2021 one, which is just so sad. And it also gives Molly agency again, where she she loses in this version. Yeah, and I think that having it come full circle to have Stan become the geek at the end as he's high and mighty in the beginning and just so prideful that he's never going to end up like his dad and he's above alcohol and all this stuff and just showing him become this sham of a con artist and this alcoholic who's going nowhere with his life. It's just this inevitable self-inflicted downfall. That's honestly all the story is. Exactly. And I I, th- I feel like it was marketed as something completely different than it ended up being too. Because I really, I think that carnival aesthetic was really popular. I know when we were in middle school, that was like a thing. What were those books that were super popular? Do you know what I'm talking about? The carnival books? Yeah. Cirque de Freak? Yeah, those. <laughs> those are good. Highly recommend. Like- <laughs> I feel like those were so popular when like we were in middle school and whatnot and that aesthetic of the carnival i mean we saw it with american horror story a couple years ago it's it's freak really, show yeah it's really great for world building um and once you do it correctly and you do it right and i do think the entire mise-en-scene of the whole film really grasps that and captures it immediately they do a really fantastic job of production design oh the production design on this film is gorgeous Exactly. And I think that's where they really put most of their effort into, which is unfortunate because I don't think that carnival scene is necessarily difficult to get across. Like, you know what you're doing here. You're at a carnival. (laughs) Yeah, this was definitely an aesthetic movie. Right. I um going into its nomination a little bit. I have a quote from Polygon, which says, it's easy to prefer Nightmare Alley over this year's other nominees for purely aesthetic reasons. 
Free to build the dark carnival of his dreams, Del Toro and the production designer Tamara Deverell construct a mesmerizing world that feels lived in and unreal at the same time. And I think that's a fantastic way of wording that. Like, it does have that unrealness to it that you get with Del Toro, kind of his fantastical mind. What is your favorite Guillermo Del Toro film? I keep meaning to ask this to you. <laughs> if you have one. Um, I don't think I've seen any of his other films, to be honest with you. You've seen Crimson Peak. <laughs> oh, he did Crimson Peak? Yeah, didn't okay, he do so Crimson, Crimson Peak? Peak? Yeah. He did um uh The Shape of Water. So funny story about the shape of water. I started watching it on a plane, but there was a child sitting next oh, to me. Okay. So I turned it off. <laughs> That's all you have to say. Um, and I, I've just never gotten back into it, but Yeah, no, and then um did you see the scary stories to tell in the dark movie? Okay, so I'm completely lying. I have seen his films. Yeah. That was an absolute lie. I don't listen to anything I say. But <laughs> um I love Crimson Peak. I think Crimson Peak is a fantastic film and he does a really good job at that fantasy there. And I think kind of what he was trying to do here with the roundabout storytelling, he does a really fantastic job within Crimson Peak and I think he nails it there. And he almost gives us I mean, not that this is a Crimson Peak episode, but he almost gives us a backwards horror film. Yeah. And I think he was trying to pull on that a little bit with this circular storytelling and it just didn't really hit the mark for me it was a miss it was a swing and a miss for this movie Mm -hmm. let's talk about the audience reactions because this one actually surprised me so we have a 7.2 on imdb for this one the 2021 nightmare alley and when you open up rotten tomatoes you will see a 79 percent from the critics and a 68 percent from the audience that's high for me, I think. I don't think you would have rated this film fresh. I think you would have given it a rotten rating. Am I correct? Mm, we'll see at the end of the episode. <laughs> Ooh, keep them on the uh, edge of their seats there. I <laughs> you got to like keep listening. Definitely, I feel like it definitely says something, though, when the critics rating is higher than the audience rating. Would you agree? I, th- I definitely agree with you on that. I think when there's a high critic rating, there's something else going on in the film. And I think a lot of audience ratings has to do with plot and how enjoyable it is to watch rather than how good of a work of film this is. Does that make well, sense? Just, that, like, differentiation? Yeah. And I mean, just how easy it is to watch in general. <laughs> yeah. And the, I don't think this is an easy film to watch at all because A, the violence is like very off-putting and it's like right there immediately when you start watching it. Um, and be the like we we keep saying going back to the plot it's just it falls short and you you don't feel like you're getting it you know I definitely think that the full circle moment of opening it with this guy who again is so just high on his horse and then ending it with him going below rock bottom to quite literally the rock bottom yeah is a full circle moment and I think it is poetic and if you are able to sit through the two and a half hours that it takes to get to that build up and the full circle it's not not satisfying like i felt satisfied the story felt completed but i just i felt underwhelmed like i was like that's all there is that's what i was waiting for exactly so i went to go see this with my brother actually and i remember looking over at you know several times that we were both checking our phone like looking at what time it was but yeah i remember getting up from that and we both looked at each other and we were like, I kept waiting for something to happen. And it just, we never got there. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Also, I feel like this entire movie is just a tease. Exactly. I want to talk about the violence a little bit because you do keep bringing it up. And I do think it's important to just 
kind of give a little warning and say that it's not the type of violence that's just blatant. It's not just there and it's not this reoccurring violence. I feel like when you look at Guillermo del Toro, you definitely have your mind made up going in about what the film is going to be like, what it's going to feel like, what it's going to look like, and all these different aesthetics. And you go in with these set expectations. And while Nightmare Alley did feel like a del Toro film, it definitely didn't look like one at the same time. Would you agree? I'm not sure I completely agree with that. I think looking like it, going into the aesthetic of it, it's very aesthetically pleasing. And it's like, I mean, I keep going back to this, this fantastical realism that he has. And I think a lot of that has to do with his cinematography and the lighting. I think a lot of the color palette lends to that fantasy that they have, that teal and yellow. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's not the Something whole root of the teal film. and yellow. Yeah. Um, the, that color combination really sets up that fantastical element to it because it's it's almost not like teal is not blue so it's not it's like a little offset from what you're used to seeing well one thing about the lighting design of this movie was that they designed it to be lit as if it was being filmed in black and white they wanted the colors and really? lights to contrast under the impression that it was being filmed in black and white and that's why it was such a big deal when they did the re-release in black and white. That's why I was so oh, excited about it. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah, and honestly- I actually really appreciate that, yeah. I was going to say, watching it in black and white does give you a completely different look at the film. I keep seeing it being described as a noir. And obviously you can have a noir without it being in black and white. But I do think having it in black and white does lend to that ambiance of the noir. Oh, yeah, definitely. I don't know if you're familiar with the movie Logan, the uh, Wolverine closure film. Haven't seen it, no. They released on the Blu-ray a film noir version of it. And I remember when that first came out, I was just so enamored because I loved that movie and I thought it was so well done. And watching it in film noir, it was almost like watching this entirely new movie. I I know we just talked about the lighting and how much I loved it. And I haven't seen the noir version. I know you have. So let me know your thoughts on this after. But I almost think this film would have been more effective had it been released as a film noir in black and white. I would have preferred it. I would have rated this movie higher had the original release been in black and white. I don't know what it is about that. But there are almost some things in this film that I can forgive if it had been going for the stylistic choices of a film noir rather that's than exactly, the genre choices of it. That's exactly where I stand as well. I think that when I saw it in the film noir version, I definitely was more willing to forgive and forget a lot of my issues that I had the first time around because mm-hmm. I was just enjoying it more. And I feel like, I don't know about you, but anytime I watch these black and white movies, I just have this sense of nostalgia and I feel more immersed in this movie. Exactly. And I know we, we got a few films like that last year, too. And I, I, I think there's something so special to black and white filmmaking where it really makes you focus on every other element that's being shown to you. Not that the cinematography isn't important. It almost becomes it's, it's a stylistic choice, you know? Yeah, I mean, they complement each other. They go hand in hand. Exactly. Going back to that Polygon article, they say, ultimately, Nightmare Alley is a challenging film to watch and think about, and some that may fall on the filmmakers for the way they prioritize style over clarity. And I think that completely explains how I feel about this film. They absolutely prioritize style, and I I think they did a fantastic and stellar job doing that. It's just the, the clarity of the plot, the clarity of the characters gets lost in their stylistic choice making. Well, and I mean, honestly, that's why I was happy to hear when it got nominated for production design and cinematography. 
But when I heard the Best Picture nom, I was a little bit surprised. I completely agree with you because I think, uh, I mean, we've talked about this a few times that the Best Picture should really encompass what that year means in filmmaking. And I think storytelling got lost here. Character building got lost here. Uh, you have acting and you have aesthetically pleasing. And that's that's pretty much you all you have. And that's what they focused on. Um, which is okay to do in a film. I just don't agree with it being a Best Picture nomination because it's so focused on only aesthetic. Yeah, I definitely think that you took the words right out of my mouth. It shouldn't have been a Best Picture nomination. It's not worthy of the title. If I were to sit down and number order all the films I watched last year, this probably wouldn't even be in the top 20. I completely agree with you. Like I said, I, I left the theater feeling unfulfilled and disappointed, as did my brother that I went to go see it with. Um, I don't think either of us had a positive initial reaction to this. That being said, I have spoken to a few people who really did enjoy this film and who walked out of it saying that was one of their favorite films they've seen in a long time. Now, these people are not versed in film, maybe, I would say. <laughs> uh, so Fair. maybe seeing an aesthetically pleasing feature like this, where I feel like we didn't get a lot of aesthetically pleasing features last year. I was going to say, I don't really think that the plot was bad either. Like, I think that the aesthetics were there. I think that the plot was a simple plot. But I mean, we have other films that do have simple plots. If you look at Coda, I mean, it's a very basic plot. Right. And we don't even have the aesthetic with Coda, but there was something so special about that film that it stuck with you. And honestly, after I saw this film, I didn't think about it again. And I don't think that makes the best picture. I agree. I obviously did think about it again because I saw it three times. Right. But <laughs> I don't think going forward I need to revisit this film anytime soon. I'd sooner revisit the old one and I'd sooner reread the book, but I wouldn't yeah. watch this one again. I, I feel like in both of those, just from hearing you talk about it, that the characters are so much more developed and so much more whole that, you know, you have something else to lean back on. And I, I think that's something that when you see the advancement of technology and filmmaking and you're able to curate these aesthetics so beautifully, I, it's easy to get lost in the world of, well, at least the film is pretty. Exactly. I would absolutely love to sit down with you and do an episode where we discuss the original Nightmare Alley. I think that can definitely be in our future because I would love to watch it. I mean, this this sounds like a really great original film and almost one that maybe didn't have to be remade again. It didn't. It was great for its time. And that's exactly what it was. I think that this film was just so good when it first came out because it just was exactly what it needed to be. It, it's a great film. It didn't have any flaws in comparison. And I mean, the novel was very popular. Yeah, that's it's it's kind of a shame when you see things happen like that, because had we not discussed this, I wouldn't have even considered watching the original because yeah. I didn't find a plot in this one that was worthy of that, you know? Well, and I think that when you look at all these different plot elements that we've been discussing, I mean, I brought up alcohol as a main plot point. If you look at the foreword of the book, it reads, booze is so strong an element in the novel that it can almost be said to be a character, an essential presence like fates and ancient Greek tragedy. And I think That's that that says a fantastic. lot. And I almost wish they put that as an epigraph at the beginning of the film. I think that would have given it such a deeper meaning and something to focus on. I think that it would have added another layer of depth to the character of Stan mm -hmm. just because it opens with him talking about not drinking and not doing drugs and not smoking cigarettes and not doing any of this stuff. And mm -hmm. again, this is a full circle film where he has this self-inflicted downfall. And I think that that definitely would have been a sense of 
foreshadowing. And you mentioned that there is all this foreshadowing and it is there if you know what to look for. But I feel like having that forward definitely would have kind of set the table and been a little bit more of a blatant foreshadow. I would have rather that than being... And I remember there's so much excessive talk about alcohol in the film. The first time I watched it, I felt like I was being hit over the head with it over and over. And I was like, oh my God, I get where we're going. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's almost like lot. reading a Fitzgerald novel where you're like, I get it. Thank you. I get it. Like, we can move Thank on. Thank you for sharing. Moving forward. <laughs> we just spent 10 pages describing a dress. Exactly. <laughs> So at the end of the day, I know we talked about it briefly earlier, but do you think that the 2021 Nightmare Alley should have been nominated for a Best Picture? I really do not agree with this as a Best Picture nomination, because I think that it's just missing so many elements that are essential to creating a good film. And I think, you know, going into the awards season is just so political. And I think having such a standout cast and crew and director the way that this this film did, I mean, it was it was a shoe in for a nomination. So it's it's kind of a shame that you're you're missing so many of those elements. And I think this would have been a great film for people to be nominated for best actor, best actress, best supporting. Um, and I definitely think it deserves its production design nomination, hands down, one hundred percent. I think it was a gorgeous film to watch. But when you put all the elements together, it's just coming up way too short for me for it to be a best picture nomination gotcha how many stars one out of ten? Four. <laughs> okay i mean i thought you were gonna go lower than that that's not surprising to me at all yeah i mean it wasn't to the point where i walked out of the theater but there were times that i wanted to have there ever been movies do you don't need to say which ones because maybe we'll cover them but have there ever been movies that you've walked out of the theater for i know one i know one <laughs> And we're I think going that's... to talk about it. <laughs> I think that's the only one, but that was for different reasons because the sound was off yeah. and I had a migraine. <laughs> like, I just, I just like, remember you were texting me and you're like, what is the score, Sean? It's giving me anxiety. And I was like, just <laughs> calm down. And then you're just like, no, Sean, I'm literally having a panic attack in the middle of this yeah. theater. And I was like, oh my God, just leave. Okay. So it was the green night that we're talking about. And I think <sighs> watching such that- a good movie. <laughs> So I think watching that at home with my own speakers where I can control the quality of what I'm listening to, I would more appreciate that film. All right. So what's your opinion? What do you think of this as a Best Picture nominee? I think that if you were to look at Nightmare Alley as just an overall title, you were to take the book, the 1947 movie and the 2021 movie and just have this juggle of a property, I'd appreciate mm -hmm. it more. As a standalone film, I don't like the 2021 version. Looking at it, as I have been the majority of this episode in a comparison sense, it's the lesser of the three. It's the bottom of the three. Yeah. I think that I would probably rate it book, 47 movie, 2021 movie. I think that's a fair rating based on what I've heard from you. And I think that it's honestly just... I don't know. When I look at a best picture, we've talked about this many, many times and we will in the future, mm -hmm. but I just need to feel something. And with Nightmare Alley, I didn't feel anything. If I'm checking my phone wondering yeah. how much longer, there's a problem. I don't feel immersed in this movie. And looking back at 2021, a year where we had all of these stellar films that were just boldly ignored by the Academy, I think that I really am left 
questioning why they picked Nightmare Alley over some other very clear contenders. I completely agree with you because I I know I think we can both come up with a bunch of films right now we can take to replace that like just off the top of my head. Without hesitation. (laughs) And then if I, I had time to think about it, it could be like a list, a full list. Exactly. Um, and I I do think they did get nominations that I do agree with. I mean, they got nominated for Best Production Design, and I think that's absolutely valid. I, I think, you know, if they if they win Best Production Design, no. We know how I feel about Macbeth. I'm rooting for Macbeth, but if they were to win Production Design, I would understand. If they were to win Production Design or Cinematography, I wouldn't question it. Not that I wouldn't be upset because I do have my picks for those categories, but I would accept it and move on. Exactly. Um, I think if this were to win Best Picture, I would definitely be upset and I I would have some major qualms with the decisions that the Academy made. Do you think it will win Best Picture? You know, that's a really good question. Um, I'm a little torn because, you know, I have my personal opinions on what this should win. I think it has a chance at winning. I, I definitely do. I, and, and I mean, Shape of Water won. The, the Academy clearly likes Del Toro. And I, I think they... I, I can appreciate him as a director. And I, I totally understand where they're coming from with that. But I just think, as a whole, this film rests on so much more than just, you know, the politics of do you or do you not like these people. Yeah, I think but that I think, it's a story of man trying to just outrun his destiny of becoming an alcoholic. Like his father. Exactly. Man versus man story. We're going a lot back to Greek theater today. <laughs> yeah, we really are. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think The Shape of Water got the same kind of pushback when it, it first came out. And I'm uneducated speaking about this because I haven't seen the film, but that did win Best Picture. So, you know, I, I do think they definitely stand a chance for winning. I don't think that I would count them out, but I definitely wouldn't put them in my top five contenders to win this. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously the fact that they're nominated puts them in the running, but yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of torn on my opinion of whether or not it'll actually make it. I think we'll have further discussions about this on this podcast. So I think that we'll close this here for right now. We'll close this can yeah. and we'll open this can of worms at a later date. Absolutely. Uh, so overall, what's your rating one through 10? I'd probably say, well, question, do you want me to rate the original version or the noir version? Uh, Let's go both. So I'd say the original, original meaning the 2021 one that is not in black and white. I would probably give maybe a 5.56 on a good day. Okay. The black and white noir version, I would probably say 6.5 or 7, somewhere between those two. Really? Let's go ahead. We'll give it a 6.5 because I don't want to be that person that's going to say that the entire aesthetic of the film changes my rating on it. Um, Yeah. But it kind of does, if I'm being honest with you. And yeah, I mean, we discussed this, but I think had the film been released in black and white, it it maybe would have had a different kind of reception with audiences because you see something when it's a pure film noir and when it it is aesthetically filmed in that style and not just in the story it it really does change someone's perspective of what they come into it looking for well and i think that after we had best pictures like the artist where you have these black and white stylized silence films i'm just really surprised that we haven't seen people 
dive into that film style further and just make it more of a mainstream thing again. I completely agree with you. And we're absolutely doing an episode on Macbeth. There's no questions about it. So look forward to hearing us talk about that one. (laughs) 100%. That'll be a very special episode and I look forward to it. But in the meantime, why don't you go ahead and give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram at BTST podcast. And if you have any film suggestions for us, shoot us a DM or email us at BTST podcast at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe if you enjoyed today's episode and join us Thursday where we will be discussing Netflix's original film, The Power of the Dog. I'm Sean. And I'm Catherine. And this has been an episode of Been There, Seen That. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 